Let's pray and ask for the Lord to send his spirit to us, that we would understand and grow according to his word. Father, we are so thankful that you have made yourself known to us in various times, in many ways, and now under this new covenant, you've made yourself known fully, finally, completely through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask now, Father and Son, that you would send your spirit to us, grant to us the grace of, of understanding your word, of, of hiding it in our hearts that we might not sin against you, of rejoicing in the work that you have done among us and embracing the commands, the duties that you've laid upon your people and that we would labor and strive according to not our own strength, not according to our own power, but according to your knowledge, your wisdom, your power, and your strength. Grant to us the grace of continuing together in Christian unity as brothers and sisters. We rejoice in this good gift, and we pray that we would not take it for granted. We ask these things for Christ's namesake. Amen. You take your seat and turn once again to Luke's Gospel, Part 2. Acts, look at the book of Acts, in chapter 6. I began a, a short sort of mini-series last week. And last week, we began to look at the, the diaconate. And looking at Acts chapter 6, that, that occasion when the first deacons under the New Covenant were appointed, the first deacons in the New Testament church were appointed here in Jerusalem. And, and if you'll recall, the background here is that there's been rapid church growth, which is a wonderful thing, it's a blessing of God. And yet, as is often the case, growth can bring opportunity for division, for difficulties. And in this particular case, there was a controversy between a group of Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, and Hebrews, Hebrew-speaking Jews. And it was more than just a, a linguistic issue. There were cultural implications there. And then we saw the, the decisive action from the apostles. Looking to the Word of God for help in solving this problem, they, they exhorted the congregation, they instructed the congregation, and the whole congregation responded joyfully together in unison, agreeing together that we ought to appoint men among us who can assist in this important task of serving the tables. So as we come to, back to the same text again today, we want to spend some, some time fleshing out what, is this, what does this look like? What does this mean? About, well, a little over, almost two years ago, Gene and I had the opportunity to visit a church plant in another city, different denomination, and, and it just so happened as they were thinking about, you know, thinking about appointing officers and beginning to make those preparations for a church plant, the pastor was teaching through various aspects of, of church life, and one of them was the diaconate. We were going to be there two weeks in a row, and he taught on the deacons the first week, and it was about 30 or 35 minutes, and I'm thinking, this is great, it's kind of setting the table for next week. That was it. There was no next week with respect to the diaconate. And I thought, you know, that's a shame, particularly for a church plant. There needs to be a lot of instruction. I think the, the office of deacon is underestimated, undervalued, and underutilized in contemporary churches. And so what I want us to do is, is to think carefully. So here we are. We're going to have three sermons on just these seven verses, and we're going to tease out several things and think together. Let's reason together from the Scriptures and let's think together, what are the implications of this? And one of the things that happens when we think in this way, we ought to ask several questions of the text. Kind of classic 
I remember taking a journalism class, or a couple of them in high school. I was on the school newspaper, and, that, and we always asked journalistic questions. Who, why, where, what, those kinds of questions. But there is an order and a priority when we think about subjects like this. So, for example, questions of why ought to precede questions of what. Questions of why, why do deacons exist? Why has God instructed his church to appoint deacons? That's a question that needs to precede questions of who or questions of what. And so another example, when I do marriage counseling, premarital counseling or post-marriage counseling, we always go back to the scriptures. What's the purpose of marriage? Why did God create the institution of marriage? And until we answer that question, some of the particulars in a marriage will we'll suffer if we don't understand the bigger picture questions. So here we're going to do the same thing. Today we're going to ask the question, two questions we're going to wrestle with today. The first one is, why are deacons vital to the mission of the local church? Why are deacons vital? Why are they necessary for a church to successfully carry out the mission that Christ has given to his church? And the second one is, what is related, what is the role then of deacons? What do deacons do? So when we ask this question of why, you know, there is, a, there is a snarky, sarcastic way of asking that question, right? Why do we have these guys? But that's not how we're posing this at all. We want to ask in a genuine way, why has God given to his churches the gift of a body of men, a group of men, that he's gifted and fitted for this particular office? Why has God done that? So let's read together Acts chapter 6. I think this is a, a good starting place for us to begin to answer that question. Why are deacons necessary to the faithful fulfillment of the Great Commission? Hear now the word of God. In those days, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. So why are deacons vital to the mission of the local church? I'm going to give you four answers to that question, four sub-answers. And these are not designed to be comprehensive, but more thought-provoking. So as a church body, when we think about, on the occasion of ordaining a new deacon next week, we ought to be thinking biblically, carefully, about why do we have these men? Why is it important to the health, the well-being of the church body? Why is it important to the mission of the church? And the first reason is deacons serve as a living, breathing testimony of our corporate commitment to the Word of God. 
Deacons serve as physical, tangible evidence that we as a body of Christ are committed to the Word of God. Let me explain that a little bit. Where do the idea of deacons come from? See, the apostles had a problem on their hand, didn't they? The body of Christ had a, bo- a, a problem on their hand. There, there are likely 5,000 or so members of the church in Jerusalem by the time we get to Acts chapter 6. And there's a division. And, and you can, as I mentioned last week, it's not hard to imagine this division was, was sort of fraught with all kinds of potential difficulties. Ethnic strife. Linguistic difficulties. Just opportunity for ordinary misunderstandings. And the opportunity for one to think, I'm being neglected. I'm being unloved by a brother or sister. We all know those can be very painful things. And so the apostles, who had been doing the work of serving the tables, we saw as we traced that through the book of Acts, when when a donation was made, Luke over and over again says that was brought to the apostles' feet. So the apostles had, had borne that responsibility, and frankly, they weren't doing a great job at it. And, and, and so this controversy arose, and the disciples humbly admitted, we can't do this. We can't do it all. And, and our primary task that Christ has given to us is the ministry of the word and prayer. It's not right that we set that aside and serve the tables. But they didn't just come up with this idea of deacons just spontaneously. They didn't gather together and think, what, what should we do? Maybe we should consult the Greeks, and how do they organize things? Maybe, maybe we should consult the Romans, and how do they do things? No, they went to their Bibles. They actually went to an event that ha- took place, recorded for us in Exodus chapter 18. If you turn with me there, in Exodus chapter 18, the scene here is Moses is ministering day by day to the people, and his father-in-law, a man named Jethro, visits Moses. And he's, you know, as a father-in-law does, he's kind of hanging out, watching things go, how things go. And he, he comes to the conclusion that, man, this is not good. This is not sustainable. Look what happens in Exodus 18, beginning in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall present the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. Now, make a mental note of that statement. Moses, your job is to warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their places in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said, Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and it went away to his own country. See, the, the apostles were committed to the scriptures for the source of their wisdom, They didn't seek their own innovation. They saw this growing problem in the church and said, 
this has happened before, or something like this. There is a principle of wisdom that we can find in the Scriptures themselves and apply to the life of the New Testament church. We've already seen, if you read through the book of Acts, there's, there's, a, there's present from the very first chapter a sort of this is that sort of rhythm. So, for example, Judas had hung, had hung himself and killed himself, one of the twelve. They consulted the Scriptures and said, well, the Scripture says a mu- another must take his office. So, b- based on the authority of the Scripture, they appointed Matthias to take the place of Judas as one of the twelve. Well, then, we also see in, in, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, men began to speak in foreign tongues, in languages they'd never spoken before, and they were able to speak it. And, and there were some skeptics in the crowd. You remember what they said? Oh, these men are drunk with new wine. And Peter stands up and says, two things are happening here. Number one, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. Two, this that you're seeing is that which Joel the prophet had foretold. See, this is that. So that's the rhythm of their thinking. These are, these are men saturated in the scriptures. And they began to think in those ways. In, in chapter 4, when Peter and James and John had been persecuted, arrested, threatened with their lives, you know how they responded? They quoted from Psalm chapter 2. This is that. This persecution that we're facing is exactly what the psalmist talked about. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? See, they were looking at the scriptures and saying, we want to apply this. Same thing is happening here. There's a problem in the church. They look at the Old Testament scriptures. How has this been handled in the past? And they go to Exodus 18. Delegation. Delegation, a division of labor, is part of the answer. So they were committed to the word of God, first of all, by looking to the word itself as its answer. But also, this demonstrates their commitment to the word because they said it's not right for us to, to, to set aside this crucial task of teaching and preaching in order that we can handle the physical needs of the church. They are not saying we are above that. That wouldn't even make sense because that's precisely what they had been doing all along was handling the serving of tables. But it had gotten to the point where the, the, the sheer numbers, the sheer size of the need was more than they could physically handle. So they said, we have to commit ourselves first and foremost to the proclamation of the word of God, because that's what Christ has commanded us. We don't have the authority. We don't have the leeway. We don't have the liberty to set that aside. But these physical necessities need to be dealt with. It's important because, as we saw last week, God has commanded that the widow and that the sojourner are cared for. And very likely, these Hellenist widows that were being neglected were possibly both widows and sojourners. So they knew this was non-negotiable for that need to go unmet, but it was not right that the apostles should set aside their primary responsibilities in order to meet those other necessary things. So first of all, deacons serve as a living, breathing, breathing testimony that we are committed to God's word. When we call deacons, it's because we are conforming ourselves as a church to the word of God. There are other ways that you could run an organization such as this. In, in, the, in the corporate world, sometimes other churches. In fact, we were having a conversation at dinner last night when I was a teenager 
was I was the president of a, of a youth group in a Methodist church, and the way the polity of that church was is that you had a, a they called it a council on ministries. They took the, the chairman or the president of every committee, and that became a ruling board for the church. Where does that come from? Well, not from the scriptures. That's, that's a, something in, invented by man. Maybe it works, maybe it's practical, but, but it's not biblical. And so when we have deacons, we are testifying to the fact that we are committed to God's word. One, by ordering ourselves by that standard, but two, by recognizing there is a priority and there needs, the, the men who labor in the teaching and preaching need to have the time and the resources in order to do that well and to do that correctly. And there are other men that God has appointed for those other tasks within the church so that there's a rightful division of labor and a continuing priority of the Word of God. There's a second reason or second way that deacons are vital to the mission of the church, and it's this. Deacons serve as a testimony to our weakness. Deacons serve as a testimony to our weakness, our limitations, our inability to do everything ourselves. Anybody, can, anybody sympathize with that temptation? I know a lot of you moms can. You think you can do everything, and you think you should do everything and you stagger under the weight of it. Deacons remind us, not just pastors, not just one another, they remind the entire church body of our limitations. We can't do it all, can we? See, our culture says that, especially to you ladies. It says you can, you can be a wife and a mom and a career woman and a, and a senator and everything at the same time. It's not true. It's not true. You can't. Not well. Men, we're, we're in the same boat. We can't do everything. And, and deacons are a living, breathing testimony to us that that's true. None of us can. Not, all, none, not one of us has all the gifts necessary to serve this church body. But collectively, the spirit of the risen Christ has given us all that we need. Deacons serve as a testimony of our, of our need to divide up the labor. It was not good for the burden of not only preaching and teaching, but also filling the physical needs of the congregation to fall upon one group of men. As, as gifted as the apostles were, they were all handpicked by Christ. They were, they were indwelt with his spirit. They had been trained personally by Christ himself. And yet even they could not be everywhere at the same time. They couldn't have the answer for every question. They couldn't solve every need. They couldn't fix every problem. And deacons remind us of that. Every one of us is tempted to think and believe the lie that we can, in fact, do it all. And deacons serve as a helpful reminder to the church body that that's not true. Did you know even our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his humanity, could not be in every place at once? Now, his divine nature is omnipresent. His divine nature is everywhere, at every place, at every time. But his human nature is limited just as ours was, just as ours is. Jesus hungered. He, thir he got thirsty. He slept. Mike Emlett wrote an essay a couple years ago called Superhuman Ministry, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But he says this, this, these physical limitations, he said, this was also true for Jesus, the truly human one. You only need to read the Gospels to get a sense of the squeeze he experienced day to day. So where do we go off the rails? 
unlike Jesus, we have not cultivated what it means to live for an audience of one. More often, if we're honest, we play to the crowd, engaging in serial people pleasing, but we are willing to disappoint, but are we willing to disappoint someone for Jesus' sake? Do you realize that it's possible, sometimes necessary even, to love faithfully while disappointing others profoundly? The siren song of omnipresence wanes as I learn to enter my days trusting that God will equip me for a finite amount of good works that he has prepared in advance for me. See Ephesians 2.10. And I pray that he will give the wisdom to discern what is most important amid the pressing needs. Isn't it often true that there's more to be done than you can do in a day, in a week, in a month? Deacons serve as a reminder to us that we were not designed to carry all the burdens, to fill all the responsibilities, to fix all the problems by our lonesome selves. We need one another, don't we? We need to share one another's burdens. Deacons remind us of that. Thirdly, there's a third reason that deacons are necessary for us as a congregation. And necessary not just for our, our, our health and well-being, that's true, but necessary for us to fulfill the Great Commission. Deacons are necessary, the third reason is because they give us a better focus in the ministry. They give us a better focus of, of ministry, and particularly for those of us who are tasked with preaching and teaching, deacons give us the liberty to do that. That's exactly, if you look back into Acts chapter 6, Again, the apostles had been doing everything. And it had grown to the point where they were physically unable to do it and do it well. The 12, verse 2, summoned the entire congregation, the full number of the disciples, and said, it's not right, it's not good. Literally, it's not pleasing in the sight of God. It's not pleasing to God that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, we looked at this last week. There, there, we, you can almost open the Bible randomly in the Old Testament and find a passage about the necessity of caring for widows. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only slightly. The commands are, are, are manifold throughout the Old Testament, the necessity of caring for widows. So the apostles are not saying it's not pleasing for God for us to do that thing which God has commanded. He's saying it's not pleasing for us to neglect our duties to teach and to preach, and to proclaim his gospel. See, that was precisely the advice that they remembered Jethro giving to Moses. You, Moses, need to focus your attention on teaching the people the laws and the statutes of God so that they can learn, here's a newsflash, they might actually solve some of these problems on their own if they know the word of God. And there will be wise men among them who can help them apply the scriptures. See, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of reasonableness, a, a sense of the people of God who have his law, who have his word, are actually sufficiently equipped in many ways. There doesn't need to be one guru who has all the answers. Now, how much more is that true under the new covenant in which every member has the Holy Spirit? Every member has access to the word of God unmediated by a human being. Deacons help us focus more on the ministry of the word. There is a necessary division of labor 
both deacons and elders are servants in, in the broadest sense, but there is a division in labor in terms of in what particular way do they serve. You know, in, in, we can illustrate this. We see this probably daily, regularly in our homes, don't we? There's a division of labor between a husband and a wife, between a father and a mother. And we might say, well, it's not right for a husband to give up his duties of providing for his family in order to run the household on those everyday things. There's a division of labor there. Not to say that one is less important. It's to say there's, there's two different people who are, who are responsible for those tasks. There is a necessity of dividing the labor within a church so that there can be better focus. See, we, we live in, in the, I think in an age it's even more, more common for us to think that we can multitask. And you can even read secular studies, sociological studies, uh, time management studies, uh, corporate studies, where they will show and demonstrate very clearly you're not as efficient as you think you are when you multitask. When you try to leave off one task and go do another task, when you come back to this one, you forgot where you were. You forgot what you've done. It takes twice as long or three times as long and, and half the efficiency, half the quality. But we're deluded often to think we even have these devices in our hand that can do a million different things, and we think we can too. And we're not designed that way. And God allows for a level of, we could even say, specialization within the church of Jesus Christ. Not to make hard lines, but to say we can divide things up. This group of men can focus more in this direction, while another group of men focus more in this direction, and both things are handled better as a result. But there's another reason related to this. There's another reason related to this, not only this focus in the ministry, but there's a danger against which deacons help guard. It's the real threat of pastoral burnout. There's a real threat of this. Uh, the late Dr. Sproul, just a couple of years before his death, a man who served in pastoral ministry for decades, who knows this threat well, he said the apostles had been given a particular mandate by Christ in order to be effective in the job to which they had been called, they had to devote themselves to, the, to prayer and to the preaching of the Word of God. The same applies in the church today. Every year, 17,000 ministers in America leave the ministry. Every year, 17,000 ministers leave the ministry. I think that number is actually higher now. A primary reason is that ministers in the modern church are not encouraged, equipped, enabled, or allowed to devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Today, a minister is expected to be the CEO of a corporation. He's expected to do the administration and the work of development. He's expected to be an expert in counseling and pastoral care. As a result, we have raised up generations of pastors who are jacks of all trades and masters of none. And one of the reasons why they do not, know, not open the Word of God for the congregation on Sunday morning is they do not know how. They have spent their time learning everything else but the text of Scripture. So for the health and welfare, the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ, deacons are necessary to divide the labor so that some men that God has said, I want you to study my word and proclaim it to my people, are able to do that. Unhindered, not by unimportant tasks, but, but unrelated tasks. There's, a, there's a, a, a necessary application with this. Deacons have the, the duty, and I think the, hopefully a privilege, 
of guarding their pastor, of guarding his time, of guarding his resources to make sure he has what he needs. You know, it, it would be like having a, a chef who has no, no, no utensils, no pots, no, no food with which to prepare a meal. Deacons are tasked with, are, are those things provided? Are they, are they available? Is his family protected? Is his wife being asked to serve as a de facto officer and take on responsibilities that are not hers, biblically? So deacons can have a very practical role within the church of Jesus Christ in helping us as a body, as it, as it were, stay on mission and to work together effectively. There's a fourth reason I'll give to you why deacons are necessary. We've seen the corporate commitment to God's word. We've seen a testimony of our, of our weakness and our inability to, to do it all. Thirdly, to give us a better focus on the ministry of the word and a better focus on the ministry of practical needs. And that brings us to the fourth reason. Why are deacons necessary? It's because God is concerned with the physical needs within his body. God is very concerned about our bodies. He's very concerned about our souls, our spiritual welfare, but he has not neglected our physical bodies. God is concerned with those physical needs, and the church is the legitimate context in which those physical needs may be met. We're kind of conditioned to look to the world, to look to a government program, to look to the civil sphere to have those needs met. That was not God's design, not particularly among his people. Is for his own people to be able to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. In James chapter 2, for example, verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The Apostle John picks up a similar theme. He says, You've got to demonstrate a love for your brother if you neglect him. If you just give lip service to him, that isn't love. That's not a love for the body. In Proverbs chapter 3, we have wisdom personified here who tells us, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, but it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it, when you have it with you. As the church of Jesus Christ, he's given us the resources that we have, that we, we could meet one another's needs. Uh, such was the, the, the extent of the needs in the, in, in the time of the early church, the book of Acts, we have it recorded, they were even willing to sell things in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. That's not a command to, when Luke says they had all things in common, this wasn't a hippie commune, it wasn't socialism, it wasn't communism. They were willing to divest themselves of their own personal property out of love for their brothers and sisters. That was a necessary thing. And so God is concerned with physical needs. And deacons are, again, a living, breathing testimony to the fact that God is concerned not, with the, not only the souls of his people, but with their bodies as well, their physical welfare. So that's a beginning for us to answer the why question. So next week, we'll, we'll look at the questions of, of who and, and how. You know, who should be chosen as deacons? How are they selected? Those are important questions too. But as we think about those, we need to sort of filter them through this grid. What's the purpose of deacons to begin with? Why do we have them? Why has God in his wisdom designed his church to function in this way? In the wisdom of our God, deacons are necessary 
for the faithful carrying out of the mission that Christ has given to his church. So now let's, let's answer the second question. What's the role then? What do deacons do? Uh, we, have, we have a why. We're beginning to answer that question. We're not done. We, need to think, we want to think about this, meditate upon these things. And not just in this moment, but the next time we, we have deacon nominations. Are we thinking about those things? Why do we have them? Why in God's wisdom has he ordered things in this way? But then we, we ought to think, what, what is the role? What we have here in Acts chapter 7, or Acts chapter 6, this idea of serving tables. And we have an, an immediate context. There were widows, who, there was a daily distribution of food, and one group, one set of w- widows, one demographic, was being neglected. And based on the way the congregation and the apostles respond, it was a true complaint. It was a legitimate complaint. But what are the, what are the, role, the role of the deacons? We, we look to Acts chapter 6, Here's a, here's a helpful phrase if you think about the book of Acts. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. Meaning it describes what happened. It doesn't prescribe what ought to happen in every circumstance, in every place, and every time. So in this particular case, the serving of tables was quite literal, wasn't it? They were handing out food on a daily basis. And they were overseeing that distribution of food. But the first thing we have to observe is there's no set particular list of duties that deacons have. What what implications do we draw from that? What what conclusions can we draw from that? Well, it's this. There's a much latitude within a local church for how the deacons function and what they do. There's a lot of latitude here. God has given us both freedom and boundaries. He's given us description of, of, we'll see next week more, who should serve, who's qualified to do these things, but within that, we have a lot of liberty as a local church, which, meet, which may mean we see other true and faithful churches who do things a little bit differently than we do, whose deacons have different roles. We also see that sometimes within a diaconate, whether you have two or three deacons or whether you had 20 deacons, those deacons have different skills and abilities and may have further division of labor and further areas of expertise or focus. Again, it's the principle that we saw bringing forward from Exodus 18, captains of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. There's a further division of labor. This will be different from church to church. It may also even be different within the same church from season to season. So for example, when we first planted GFBC almost 13 years ago, we had almost exclusively very young families with lots of little kids. Well, the role of a deacon in that environment is different from We had our associational meeting this past Friday, and one of the churches in their report was talking about how how a large percentage of their congregation is elderly and sick. Well, those are different demands on a diaconate than the demands placed on a diaconate who's covering or handling mostly young families, isn't it? So common sense, sanctified common sense and reason would help us to apply these things differently. Where deacons in one church may do one set of responsibilities, and they have a little bit different responsibility in another church based on its needs. Or even in the same church, as that church grows and matures, either spiritually or literally, actually matures. So there's not a restriction here. We need to understand this very carefully. The idea of serving tables is not a restriction to menial tasks. 
These are not hired laborers. See, sometimes we have the idea of the diaconate as if we all got on a cruise ship. We're all taking a cruise together, and we just kind of decided amongst ourselves, we're going to vote on a couple of men to be set aside to make sure my glass of lemonade is always full and I have fresh towels at the pool. And that's the way we treat the diaconate. That's not God's design. These are men who lead in the area of serving the people of God. But they're leading the people to serve one another. I mean, just as a, as a, we can, again, use our sanctified common sense and read between the lines in Acts chapter 6. There were 5,000 members, roughly, by the time we get to Acts chapter 6. They only chose seven men. Again, the idea of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, isn't it? These were men who led in the service. These weren't the ones who were, had the ladle out serving themselves necessarily. They were willing to. They were able to do that. These were men who could delegate and who could motivate and inspire others to serve alongside them. The role of deacons is to lead in the service of the body, not merely to do all the work. So again, as we look next week at the, the question of who, we need to think deliberately about men who already not only serve God's people already. We're not looking to, to bring a deacon on and goes, well, maybe he'll grow into serving people. Maybe after he's appointed to office, he will gain a love for God's people that makes him willing to sacrifice his time and his gifts and his abilities on their behalf. No, let them first be tested, is what the scriptures say. We want men who've already shown, irrespective of an office they didn't hold, that they were already doing that work. And even further, that they were willing to encourage others likewise and set that tone, set that, that pattern, that example in both word and deed. I believe there's a real challenge here to avoid that proverbial ditch on both sides of the road. There's, there's a challenge to think of deacons, on the one hand, as just menial servants, and they do all the stuff that nobody else wants to do. They're the only ones in the church who know how to work, who know, know how to work a toilet plunger. Well, that shouldn't be, Right? They're the ones who know how to, how, to, how, to, how to set up or take down or do these. No, that, that we, we are all in this together. But on the other side, the other opposite error to avoid is to, is to think of our deacons as a ruling body. That's kind of the model in a lot of Southern Baptist churches, or at least the ones I've been part of. Uh, the pastor, in some ways, ends up subordinate to a board of deacons. So there's an error on both sides that we want to avoid. So what's the role of deacons? This serving tables, but we need to think of this holistically, broadly, based on the needs of the church, based on the needs of the church in this season. What do deacons do? Uh, short answer is whatever they need to do, whatever the body needs them to do. But the essence of that is leading the people of God to serve themselves, to serve one another. There's a second role that I want to draw out of deacons. And I alluded to this last week, but I want to emphasize it again, and it's to promote unity within the body. Deacons have an opportunity to be active promoters of unity. In Paul's letter to the Roman church, he says, as much as it depends on you, pursue peace with everyone. And, and with that, he, he places upon every believer an affirmative duty to go looking for peace. Not to sit back and say, well, if they're apologized to me, I'll, I'll accept peace if it comes to me. No, you, you, we're all to be seekers of that. Deacons are the ones who have to lead in those areas. 
at the ground level. I mean, think about the context in Acts chapter 6. You've got a, a very difficult situation. Emotionally charged, people's mothers were not being fed properly. And deacons were able, in a sense, to wade into that difficult, emotionally, you know, just, just landmines everywhere, right? And able to wade into that and seek peace. This, this is not the place where you want a man who's contentious, who's self-seeking, who's not a team player, who is known for wanting his own way. Deacons have an opportunity to be unifiers within the body. And again, in, in Exodus 18, we see that. The people responded favorably. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, De- Moses is giving a history lesson to the people before they cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. And he reminds them in Deuteronomy chapter 1 that that act that Moses did of delegating was pleasing to the whole group. It was good to everyone. And it echoes the words we see in Acts chapter 6. It was pleasing to the whole congregation. There's an opportunity for deacons to to cultivate a, a relationship between the members of the congregation and the elders and sometimes help bridge a gap there. There are things in a, in a church that a pastor, an elder, may just not know. And a deacon may see something, may, may discern a need to which the pastor was oblivious, either because he just didn't have the opportunity to notice it or because he didn't have the gifts to notice that need. And deacons would be a wonderful opportunity to see, this is a need. This is, pastor, this, is, this has the opportunity to be a real problem if this isn't addressed. Let's work together for a solution to that. In college, I I waited tables and served in restaurants, and and I often saw this dynamic when something went wrong, that the waiter would come out to the table, and you know who always gets blamed, right? The kitchen. It's always the kitchen's fault. Even when the waiter put in the order wrong, or left it sitting back there and let it get cold, it's always, 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 always the kitchen's fault. And I learned, as as a young man serving and making my living on tips, that that didn't really work out too well. People smelled, just got, they cut through that pretty quick. And it was much better to go out and say, you know what, we have a problem. And we, together, want to solve this problem. And want to make sure you're cared for. And see, that that same dynamic can go on within a church, can't it? Where there's a lot, it can be finger-pointing. The deacons can be the group that says, well, you know, yeah, we're kind of suspicious of the pastor too. And, and we, we, we've also got our own set of problems. Or of the members. Or, you know, you, you, it's not hard. I don't have to spell this out for you. you. You're wise people. You know how this can go. And deacons have the opportunity to be peacemakers in those things. Uh, Jamie Dunlap wrote an article, it's been years ago, in the, in the um, Nine Marks Journal, where he referred to deacons as shock absorbers. I think it's a good analogy. It's a good illustration. You're riding along on a bumpy road, and if you don't have shock, you ever had a vehicle that didn't have shock, you just bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce until your kidneys are going to fall out in the floorboard. And a shock absorber softens those blows. It maintains control. It allows the driver to be in control of the vehicle. And deacons can have that kind of effect within the congregation. They can add to the bouncing, (laughs) or they can serve as shock absorbers. In Philippians 2, Paul exhorts the congregation there. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Deacons have a wonderful opportunity within the body of Christ to help cultivate this oneness of mind in Christ. Thirdly, one of the role of a deacon. Deacons have the ability to assist in implementing the God-given authority within a local church. There's a role of of implementing, of of bringing to bear the authority of a local church. What do I mean by that? Well, elders are charged with, with preaching and teaching and giving oversight of a congregation. But deacons are necessary to help the elders to give proper oversight. I mean, think about the scenario in Acts chapter 6. The the apostles were charged with all of the oversight of the congregation, including those physical needs. It got to the point where they just physically couldn't do it all. And deacons were able to assist them by way of not only physical help, but also, no doubt, advice, counsel, helping them anticipate problems, helping them discern further needs in the body. Because, you know, there's that one need that was obvious, the, the widows were being neglected, but there were probably other issues as well. You don't have a group of 5,000 people meeting together week by week and house to house without other difficulties coming up. And wise, faithful deacons are able to help think this through. And and we won't turn here, but in Acts chapter 20, there's this one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. There's this, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's already been told by by a prophet that he's, he's going to be put in chains when he gets there. And he wants to meet with the Ephesian elders. He'd spent years working and laboring among the Ephesian church. But he couldn't even go to Ephesus because the last time he was there, there was a riot. He would probably be locked up and arrested there. So they meet at one town over at a place called Miletus. It's on the shore. They meet on the beach. And here's the elders of the church at Ephesus come to meet Paul. And there's this tearful goodbye because they, they literally hug his neck and they weep because they know they'll never see him again face to face. And Paul charges the elders there to give careful oversight of the flock, to protect the flock. He said, the ravenous wolves are going to come up from among you. There will be ravenous wolves. He commands them to be alert. He commands them to help the weak. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you, there's not a pastor alive who can do that well without some help. There's not a pastor alive who has all the gifts and graces to see those various weaknesses in the body that need a special care. There's there's no eldership. Even even if we had a a robust plurality, there still is an alertness necessary kind of at the ground level within the congregation that that a pastor may just miss. He He might miss it. And I think we can illustrate this again from the home, can't we? Men, I won't ask, I won't embarrass you, I won't ask you to raise your hand. But have you ever had something where you just were totally clueless to something going on in your own home? And your wife said, hey, <laughs> uh, you seeing this? No, I didn't see it. But I'm glad you brought it to my attention. Because I'm, I'm tasked as, as the husband and the father in this home to give oversight. 
but I missed it. I didn't see it. And a faithful, godly wife says, well, here, I can help you see this. Here's a need within your child. Here's a weakness in your son. Here, here's a hurt within your, with your daughter that you, you're missing. And, and, a, and a godly husband will be thankful for that. And, and by analogy, a pastor should be thankful when deacons say, you're probably not seeing this. Maybe you've seen it, didn't know what to do. But here's an issue. Here's a hurt. Here's a weakness. Here's a difficulty. And deacons have an opportunity to be a, an instrument in helping the, 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 the eldership apply and, and handle that duty of oversight. So deacons play a vital role in assisting elders who could not possibly accomplish the task of oversight on their own. So next week, we'll consider two other questions. Whom should a church select as deacons? And how should a church select those men? So whom and how? This week, we've looked at the why question. And and, in a sense, the what question. What do they do? What's, What's their function? But why do we have them? Notice the response of the congregation here in Acts chapter 6. We're told that this pleased the whole gathering. And I think that brings to to, to bear upon us, every individual member, whether you're an officer or not, that brings to bear a question upon us. How hard are you to please? The body responded. The problem wasn't even solved yet. The problem wasn't solved yet. But but there there was a plan. There was, there was a prayerful unity among the congregation that we, we are committed to solving this, and the people of God were pleased. But you've known people, I've known people, maybe, I, and I've, sometimes I've been the people that just refused to be pleased. I didn't get my way. The guy that I really wanted didn't get chosen. Or maybe I wanted to be chosen, I didn't get chosen. Are we, are we hard to please? Are we willing for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his body to think less of ourselves and to think higher of others? Are you pursuing your own way or pursuing a common labor with your brothers and sisters in the church for the glory of Christ and for the proclamation of his gospel? I mean, one of the chief things I think the apostles did at this occasion is to reorient the congregation to the northern compass point, which is Christ and his gospel. We can so easily get distracted and, and get off task, can't we? Individually, corporately, that, that's not hard for that to happen. Are we willing to be redirected by the word of God according to his wisdom and his commands? So we need to think biblically about the office of deacon. This is, a, this is a blessing that God has provided for his church. These men are a blessing to us. We ought to praise God for them. We ought to pray for them. And, and as we grow in our understanding of deacons, some of our presuppositions, some of the things that maybe we've just assumed need to change. You ever, you ever knew something pretty solidly and only to find out you didn't know it or it was wrong? It's the classic Ronald Reagan quote, right? It's not that my liberal friends don't know anything if they know too many things that aren't so. There are things about the diaconate that maybe you know that just aren't so. And, and so we need to think biblically about that. If, if we think in terms of just grunt work, 
that we've selected men among us to do the tasks that we don't want to do, but now we've, we've kind of hired a maid, we've hired a butler, and now we're, we, can, we can relax on this ocean voyage. Or on the other side, do we think about the diaconate as a ruling body, as the governing authority of the church? See, neither, neither of those are, are biblical views, and yet they're both fairly common. And, and I know probably each of you could point to examples of that. I want to leave you with this. By way of, of, of application, the, sometimes the application in the sermon is, well, go do this thing or that thing, or don't do that thing or this other thing. Sometimes the application from a text of Scripture is for us to think better. It's to think carefully, to meditate. Um, one of the things that I think we, we, we ought to consider here, particularly in, in light of its context early in the revelation of, of the book of Acts, is we ought to stand in awe of the wisdom of our God. How do you think about Acts chapter 6? Well, there's a lot of practical things about the diaconate, but let's back up a little bit. Will you stand in awe at the wisdom of our God? That he has not left his churches without resources, without, without guidance, without wisdom and understanding. His, his word hasn't neglected anything. He's given us both clear direction and yet liberty within, that, within that, that, those boundaries to organize ourselves according to our needs. The diaconate, fundamentally, is rooted in the eternal love of our Heavenly Father because He cares for each one of you, both body and soul. He cares not only about your eternal destiny, but He cares about your, your, your human condition now. This is not a name and claim it, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but God is concerned about your physical person. And if his people are in need, he wants the rest of his members of his body as much as they are able to satisfy that need. And this eternal love of our Father has has been expressed in sending his Son to redeem a people, to ransom a people to offer himself as the propitiation for a people, to bear the curse for that people. And he sent, the Father and the Son together have sent the Holy Spirit to create new life in us, to cultivate and sustain unity among us. The risen Christ has given gifts to men to equip them for various places of service. We'll look at those specific gifts and graces that are needed for the diaconate next week. But the risen Christ is the source of these gifts. You can go to read, read Ephesians 4 very clearly. It's the risen Christ who gives gifts to men. And whether it's preaching or serving tables, all depend upon the gifting of God. And so our, our triune God has, is expressing his special love, his special care for his people through an ordered church, through a church who has a healthy diaconate through a church is willing to practice this, the wisdom of division of labor among them for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our own welfare and good. So I, I exhort you to pray. Pray for the men who labor among you. Pray for your deacons. Pray, pray for Stephen. Pray for Kyle. Pray for their wives. Pray for J. Michael and, and for his wife, Mary, as, as he prepares to take on the, the office of deacon. We ought to pray for these men. Pray for me. 
Uh, pray for me as a, as a pastor. I promise you, I don't have the answers, all the answers. I don't have many of the answers. I don't have the, the, the mental or physical bandwidth to supply all the needs of God's people. But thankfully, God hasn't designed me that way. He hasn't asked me to have that. So we ought to embrace that division of labor. We ought to embrace the goodness of our God as he has made himself known, even in the order of his church. Pray that God will raise up a variety of gifts and that God will raise up even more servants among us. Let's give ourselves now to prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for the wisdom that you have made known to us wisdom that has come to us in the flesh. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, who has instructed his apostles, who's made himself known. Father, we thank you that you, both you and the Son, have sent to us your Spirit, by whom we have the the full wisdom of God made known to us through your Word and through his indwelling of us. We pray that you will give to us the grace to submit ourselves to to the wisdom of your word. In some ways it seems so simple, and yet we are creative enough, according to our sinful natures, that we can can stray and wander from the clear and simple path that you've given to us. So we pray for your help. We pray for your grace among us, uh, we thank you that we have enjoyed a season, a long season of, of unity together. Uh, we pray that we not take that for granted, that each of us will take it upon ourselves to do the necessary work of, of pursuing peace, of rejoicing in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that we have in Christ through His Spirit. It's in His name that we ask these things. Amen.